Hello and welcome to this podcast. I'm Janet Vignall QC and I'm joined again today by my colleague at Falcon Chambers, Martin Dre. On 23rd of June, Martin and I podcast, turning over some thoughts about turnover rents. Today, we share some further thoughts on that topic. As recently as the 20th of July, it was reported that the Crown Estate is supporting independent restaurant operators by offering a turnover-based deal, so sharing with its tenants the pain of falling footfall. It's not alone. The Cadogan Estate's longer-term response to COVID-19 has been to switch food and drink businesses from fixed rents to turnover-based rents, providing them with greater certainty of affordability as they reopen their doors to customers. Similarly, the owner of Covent Garden, Capco, seeing traditional receipts plunge, has offered to link lease terms to turnover in an attempt to increase occupancy. As we previously suggested, and as these and other developments confirm, the greater use of turnover rents may provide part of a constructive and valuable way forward for some would-be or actual landlords and tenants now and in future. That said, it has to be recognised that there can also be significant difficulties in the use of turnover rents. So, in this podcast, Martin and I consider some key points to be addressed to ensure that turnover rents work well in practice. As a starting point, and as the Times commented in its article, rent deals will be linked to turnover, say landlords, on the 11th of May, a shift to the greater use of turnover rents relies on data sharing and trust between landlords and tenants. It stands to reason that the greater the understanding the landlord gains of the tenant's business model, the more likely it is that a robust and mutually satisfactory bespoke payment framework can be crafted to be put in place for the term. This point, centred on trust, is not so much down to drafting as it is to cultural attitudes. However, it may be that the unprecedented circumstances that the coronavirus pandemic has generated will prove to be the catalyst for fundamental changes in landlord and tenant relationships, particularly in the retail and leisure sectors, and promote a shift from the old them and us mentality to a new we're all in this together mindset, which in turn plays out in the form of greater engagement between the parties than has historically been the case. So, When it comes to drafting the specifics of turnover rents, what are our top tips? Well, we've rustled up 14 of them. Tip one, should a basic rent be reserved? In the past, this has usually been done. Previously, often at between 70% and 90% of the open market rental assessed on a conventional basis. An alternative is to use a guaranteed minimum, which is reviewed at periodic intervals. Tip two. What about the definition of turnover? 
Well, tenants advisors need to study carefully the definition of turnover upon which the rent is to be calculated. In so far as possible, it should be related to the actual profit made by the tenant. From the landlord's point of view though, too close a relationship between rent and profit means their income will depend to a large extent on the efficiency with which the tenant carries on business rather than on the value of the demised property. That said, unless pure turnover is used, wherever the line is drawn, it's likely that some unavoidable costs of sales, for example, perhaps commission paid to credit card companies, will surely fall to be excluded from account. Tip three, minimum and maximum turnover figures. Well, a tenant's advisor should ensure there is a minimum turnover figure, which is not to be taken into account in assessing the rent, and possibly a maximum figure above which turnover is also ignored. Tip four, sales, vouchers, gift cards. Where the tenant's likely to have sales or special offers, their advisors should attempt to ensure that it is the amount they receive rather than the full retail price, which is to be included in the calculation of turnover. Equally, the landlord's advisor needs to consider the impact of sales of store vouchers and gift cards and how they should be brought into account. Tip five. Well, this is about credit. Where the tenant's businesses include a substantial number of transactions in which they give credit to their customers, the drafter will have to consider whether the amount of the transaction should be brought into account at the time of the transaction or at the time of payment. Whether interest payments are to be included in the calculation of turnover and whether the tenant is to have an allowance for bad debts. Tip six, the internet and click and collect. This really is the big one. The appropriate balance which now requires to be struck to reflect the relationship between the use of a tenant's physical retail premises and their use of their website for sales. The machinery incorporated needs to reflect the use of a store as the means for a customer to view or test a product before making their actual purchase online, or the use of a store as the place to collect a purchase selected and made online. As a starting point, it's necessary to consider the way in which the retailer accounts for profits resulting from shoppers and tenants use of the internet itself. Orders made via the internet on in-store computers should be attributed to that store's turnover rather than perhaps being notionally allocated to a different shop in the tenant group as a matter of the tenant's accounting practice. Even more significantly, in this era of online shopping, orders placed remotely on the internet but collected from stores should probably be attributed to the store where the collection is made. So tip seven, and this is the last tip from me. 
it's vital to focus on the need for a robust accounting machinery. If a base rent is payable, then the lease will provide that the base rent is to be paid in conventional instalments in advance. Because the turnover for each year can only be established following the end of the relevant year, most landlords will also normally wish to provide for a provisional sum to be paid in advance on account of the turnover rent and on the same dates as the basic rent is payable. Terms should also be included, setting out the appropriate machinery. For example, the provision by the tenant to the landlord of a turnover certificate signed by a qualified accountant at the end of the turnover period within an agreed time period, potentially for the production of audited accounts, and for the tenant to make available to the landlord its accounts and all relevant supporting documentation for inspection. The drafter must provide for the landlord to have sufficient power of inspection of the tenant's books to be satisfied that any information supplied by the tenant is correct. Of course, the alternative is to rely on the installation of some form of on-site technology these days. There should probably be a provision for independent determination by an accountant rather than a surveyor in case of dispute. I mentioned the tenant's audited accounts before, and I've got a footnote about that. Reliance on the tenant's audited accounts for the purpose of calculating turnover may be unwise for the landlord, not because those accounts may be inaccurate, but because they may not be settled until well after the end of the rental period in question. And with those initial seven, I turn to Martin now for his seven top tips. Thank you, Janet. Well, drafting tip eight concerns the definition of turnover and the interrelationship with taxes. In Debenhams Retail PLC and Sun Alliance and London Insurance Company, 2005, the tenant held department store premises under a lease granted in 1971 for a term of 99 years from 1965. The lease reserved a basic rent together with an additional rent calculated by reference to the store's turnover defined as the gross amount of the total sales. The Court of Appeal held that those words meant everything that was taken at the till, including VAT, without deduction. Today, a tenant would generally expect to see VAT and any other applicable taxes expressly excluded from the definition of turnover, on the basis that the VAT which is to be passed on by the business as tax collector to HMRC is not a beneficial part of its revenue, except perhaps in the case of smaller businesses using the flat rate scheme in which a fixed rate of VAT is paid to HMRC and the business doesn't reclaim VAT on its purchases by way of input tax, but rather keeps the difference between the VAT charged to its customers and what it pays to HMRC. Of course, if VAT is included in the assessable turnover, consideration will need to be given to the fact that different rates may apply depending on whether the taxable supply in question 
attracts the standard reduced rate or zero rate of tax, as well as to the possibility of some transactions involving exempt goods or services. Point nine, changing profit rates. If the price of a commodity rises at a faster rate than the cost of living, pressure is likely to develop on dealers in that commodity to reduce their margin of profit or rate of commission. See Naylor and Utoxeter UDC 1974. Accordingly, the tenant may find that the proportion of rent to profit increases. And the same result may occur even if the tenant does not consciously reduce its profit margin. For example, if the government were to increase the rate of VAT, whether after a temporary reduction, as has recently been granted to some sectors, or on a more permanent basis, a tenant's gross turnover might increase, and with it the rent, despite the tenant's net profit remaining static. See by way of specific example, Tucker and Granada Motorway Services, 1977. Of course, if, as is suggested and advisable, VAT is excluded from account, the issue is avoided. Point 10, keep open covenants. This is a particularly topical issue, given the impact of the health protection coronavirus restrictions, number two, England regulations, and their various predecessors, all of which have enforced the lockdown, which has resulted in thousands of businesses being obliged to close and continues to see many remain closed. Subject to the need for parties to consider the incorporation of pandemic-specific exclusions in the drafting, a landlord's advisor will generally wish to couple a turnover rent clause with a tenant's covenant to keep open. This is in an attempt to ensure that the demised property remains open and trading. Clearly, if the demised premises cease to be used for trading, the landlord's income will drop or possibly terminate. A landlord will thus desire to protect against this risk. And although an injunction to compel the tenant to trade is thought to be unobtainable, see Cooperative Insurance Society and Argyle Stores, 1998, a positive obligation will give the landlord a remedy in damages. Costain Property in Finlay, 1989, and Transworld Land and J. Sainsbury, 1990. This is subject, though, to any defence which the tenant may be able to deploy. But a balance must be struck. In addition to catering for the enforced closure as a result of statutory regulation, the tenant's advisor should ensure that the keep open clause excludes circumstances where the store is, for example, closed for repairs, refitting, or as a result of damage caused by insured risks. From the other perspective, the landlord may wish to include a term for the rent to revert to the open market rental level if the closure is in excess of a certain period. Point 11, rent review. If the lease is to include rent review provisions, it has been common to see clauses where the parties have provided for the base rent to be reviewed to the open market rental level 
disregarding the turnover provisions. Equally, in the hospitality and leisure sectors, and for unique properties, a profits method evaluation is commonplace and itself will require careful thought. 12. Alienation. The parties should consider whether the provisions as to payment of the turnover rent are to continue if the lease is assigned or a subletting takes place, or are to be made personal to the original tenant. If the provisions are to terminate, the full market rent should become payable. And during the currency of a turnover rent, the drafter should ensure that any license fee or subrent, i.e. income from the property otherwise than through the operation of the tenant's business, is taken into account in calculating the tenant's turnover. 13. The tenant's advisor will wish to ensure that confidentiality provisions are included to ensure that the landlord does not disclose the tenant's private and potentially sensitive business information and that it uses the same solely to calculate the turnover rent. And last but not least, number 14, dispute resolution. Linked to the need for confidentiality, a private arbitration mechanism will be the best way forward in the event of a dispute. In conclusion, these are difficult times for businesses. Times like these call for doing things differently and better. Collaboration between landlords and tenants and the widespread adoption of turnover rents would tick an important box in this regard. Although there are a number of points of principle and drafting to bear in mind, which we flagged in this podcast, there is no doubt that turnover rents are potentially a very achievable win-win for all concerned. They can align the interests of landlords and tenants, generate more stable businesses in which both parties are genuinely interested, and yield fairer and more sustainable rents. So landlords, say goodbye to a turnover of tenants. Instead, say hello to the turnover of your tenants. Well, we hope you've enjoyed our podcast and thank you for listening.